Welcome to our very first Charter School Investor Podcast, where we explore the question, what does charter school leadership look like? Each month, we meet with leaders in the charter school sector to better understand how they land the plane while it's still being built. My name is Alan Wolstetter, and I'm CEO and founder of School Improvement Partnership. School Improvement Partnership supports data transparency and accountability in the charter school sector through the School Improvement Partnership database and by reporting on over $1.5 billion of charter school bonds. I'm very pleased today to have our first guest, uh, a very good friend of mine, Paul Dallas. As many of you know, uh, Paul is the former chief financial officer of Chicago Public Schools. Uh, he's the former superintendent of the school district of Philadelphia, and he's a recent Chicago mayoral candidate. In this episode, Paul and I will do a deep dive on the issue not only of charter school leadership, but district leadership in a way where charter schools and different modes of public education can be supported. I will also get his advice on setting a culture of academic achievement in Chicago and Philadelphia, how he built actually a school district from scratch after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and also how he sees a future trend of career and technical charter high schools as a model that will be growing. We'll also find a little bit about how Paul feels he's grown as a leader along the way. Before we start, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Herbert J. Sims. From single-site charter schools to CMOs, from expansions to startups, Herbert J. Sims delivers innovative and flexible capital solutions that meet their clients' evolving needs through their financed right approach. Get ready. We're about to take a deep dive with Paul Vallis into what charter school leadership looks like. Uh, so, Paul, um, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. So I do remember about 20 years ago, when my neighborhood was picking our little league team of 11 and 12-year-olds, I was assigned some kid named Gus, who just arrived from Chicago. I had no idea that, oh, there's our picture. There's the picture. I had no idea that Gus could really hit. And I had even less idea that his dad, you, were brought in to straighten out the finances and operations of the school district of Philadelphia. So there's the team. There's Gus and Chip right up front. Chip is laying down. My son and Gus is ready to tag somebody out at home. There's Sharon in there. And there's you. And I do remember that this was followed by a game, I think, where we played the kids, right? Gus definitely was a ringer. He immediately started hitting home runs and couldn't figure out how you got him. And he fell in your lap. Absolutely. But you were nice enough to play the other two Vals boys, too. Then have nearly the skills that Gus had. Oh, Mark was, Mark turned into a pretty decent first baseman, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, you know, 
You were very patient with my he, he did great. He did great and brought so much. And so I do, one thing I do recall is that your head was so big, we had trouble finding a baseball helmet for him. Right. Yeah. So, but tell me this, with what lessons would you say you learned about urban education or confirmed your learnings about urban education during your tenure in Philadelphia? I like to think, I like to think that my, my thinking as a superintendent evolved. I like to think we had great success in Philadelphia, which is why I went to Philadelphia. I went to, we had great success in Chicago, which is what brought us to Philadelphia. And let me point out that I had been invited to take the chancellorship in New York. So I actually, I actually take Philadelphia because my wife did not want to move to New York at that time. I didn't know that. that not, and that did not, that did not keep me from during my administration or when I was trying to get financial support for Philadelphia and I became consistently, uh, uh, I consistently struggled to get support from the administration if we were made a name, making that interpretive reference to the only way we're going to get more funding for Philadelphia schools if we become the sixth bureau, borough of New York. So it wasn't one of my smarter, wasn't one of my smarter political statements, but anyway, but no, it was a great experience there. I think my thinking on education evolved uh, to the importance of really ensuring that every single First of all, I believe that the key to school, there are essential practices that are critical to all high-performing schools. You need superior curriculum and structural models that are aligned grade by grade. You need to be using data effectively so that you can assess student progress and teacher effectiveness. And I'm not talking about high-stakes testing. I'm talking about formative assessments. Uh, you need to have interventions that are driven by the data, and you need to have them early, whether they're academic or behavioral interventions. You need to train your teachers on how to deliver the curriculum and instructional models and how to do the interventions. And then finally, you need an instructional leadership team uh, that can drive instruction. It can't be dependent on one person. If you have that type of infrastructure and you are, are able to find ways to extend the instructional training on tasks, that can be transformational because in Philadelphia, as every teacher was correct, was equipped with uh, superior curriculum and instructional models. The schools were not required to use them, but 90% of the schools did because they were so superior, as detailed as any teacher would need them. So they certainly helped teachers who were teaching out of their education, new teachers, et cetera. In fact, the charter schools, most of the charter schools ended up using our everyday math or University of Chicago math curriculum instructional models. And of course, the instructional paramount task, every school was on an extended day program, an extended year program. So that additional instructional experiment has made a difference. So those are certain commonalities that exist in all high-performing schools, whether they're charters, not charters, whether they're private schools, parochial schools. And you see those commonalities, the curriculum, the use of data, the leadership teams, the additional instructional experiment tasks, training teachers on how to deliver the curriculum instructional models. When you see that's a DNA to high-performing schools. And I really think I refined that model. And as, as you well know, Mass scores tripled over a seven, eight year period in Philadelphia across all demographics and reading scores more than doubled. Philadelphia led, led the nation in terms of the academic improvement of the district vis-a-vis -vis the state as a whole. We were like number one. And I think New York among large urban districts was a distant number two. So we clearly had great success. So that, that there's right. a DNA high performing school. But that piece, which is so interesting about that is at the superintendent level, and I continue to run into people who keep saying, when's Paul Vallis coming back? When's Paul Vallis coming back? People who used to work for you, 
So I think there was a, there were two pieces of it, you know, that were, I think what I recall, which was one, you do have a beautiful way of empowering people and getting it down to the right level so that you don't want to be in every classroom and you don't want your academic people there. So you did that. And then I think of Mao's A Thousand Flowers campaign. You don't, you didn't care what kind of school it was. You just want them to be achieving. So whether it's the parochial schools, the charter schools, the district schools, yeah, I felt like you create, created an environment where the more the merrier. We do part charter schools as part of the district. And to the union's credit, we had a very cordial relationship. As with the, with the UPenn model, the model school model, that was their version of a charter was an extraordinary model in partnership with the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. And so at, at the end, but the point that I want to make is there is a DNA to high-performing schools. And the struggle that you face in some large districts where you have unions that are dominated by, by leaders, not by rank and file teachers, but by leaders who have an agenda other than school improvement. In Chicago, 80% of the union dues are, are spent on political stuff. I mean, and, and they support anti, anti-police groups. They fund the cop groups. They fund all sorts of far-left organizations. We really become a political organization. The point that I want to make, though, is what happens in many of the traditional school districts is, is between between ineffective state mandates and the union collective bargaining agreements, your ability to bring these essential practices to the schools are impeded. And charters have always, charters by their nature have the flexibility to have a longer day, to adjust their staffing models, to do all the things that I've articulated. Now, of course, the key though is to hold charters accountable. The key is to hold charters accountable, which you should be able to do much more effectively in traditional public schools because they are in fact charters. So at the end of the day, the beauty of the charter movement, particularly when you have strong charter accountability and when you're vetting the type of schools that you're opening as charters, is that flexibility to really design a school first and foremost in ways that it benefits the child. And it's it, it's not a school system that places the adults first. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Then I know you were recruited down to, uh, after Hurricane Katrina, you were uh, uh, recruited down there to uh, rebuild New Orleans schools after uh, the hurricane. Um, and I guess in a spot like that, it was probably in some ways worse and in some ways better in your ability to uh, execute change because perhaps some of the traditional barriers were not there, but yet there was nothing. So how did you rebuild New Orleans? And in yeah. fact, I think charterized the district and the results academically mirrored the growth in Philadelphia. Let me point out that I always felt Philadelphia had a really strong infrastructure. Ted Kirsch, Jerry Jordan, who's the union president now, were very good to work with, but I was always a straight. When I took the Philadelphia job, I actually met with them beforehand because I wanted to see if I would be able to work with them like I was able to work with the CTU, Chicago Teachers Union, and the late, great Tom Reese, the union president. And, and, and in fact, the, the Ridge administration almost turned over the entire Philadelphia school system to Edison. And I remember we, that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it. And we blocked that. I wouldn't take the job because I wasn't going to, I wanted to run a school district, not oversee Edison. So we were able to, people forget about that, that, that we were able to block that. We were able to limit the, the privatizing of schools that they were actually doing. You know what I mean? And so we, we were able to do that. We held the line, we froze 
because they have turned over a fixed number of schools to not only private providers, but also to universities to have more UPenn took over a number of schools and things like that. But in Philadelphia, we literally had an opportunity to build the district from scratch. And let me point out that I was recruited by the Democrats, the late great Governor Blanco and senior senator there, Mary Landrin, of course, the daughter of the great integrationist mayor, Moonland, from New Orleans. And later on became, I think, housing secretary for Jimmy Carr, just extraordinary individual, passed away a couple of years ago. And so the decision was made that we wanted to create a district of schools and not a school district. Of the first 17, and I actually arrived in New Orleans a year after Katrina, because for literally the first year after Katrina, they could not get schools literally to save their lives. So I came down there. Almost all the teachers had left the system. The previous board had actually fired the teachers after Katrina because they had no money coming in. And obviously the majority of teachers had evacuated. So we had no buildings. 80% of buildings were uninhabitable and we had no teachers. So we literally had to build the distance from scratch. So we obviously began, we brought, we basically began to open charter schools. Uh, we created an organization called New Schools in New Orleans, or we supported the creation of an organization that made it their business to go in and to identify and help nurture and help develop good charter operators. So every charter that was opened had an instructional leadership theme and that had been selected and a model that had been selected and vetted, all the things done right. And then, of course, uh, I had to open schools on my own. I, 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 I had three months to open about two dozen campuses that were more traditional campuses. Ultimately, though, all those schools became autonomous schools too. The unique thing about the New Orleans model is New Orleans is a, almost a hundred. It is a hundred percent school choice district. The only select enrollment schools are actually the traditional public school magnet schools that remain traditional public schools. The rest are all charters, but they're neighborhood charters. They're community charters. They're really like individual districts in their own right. Ninety-seven percent of the non-capital money falls directly to them. They have great autonomy. They have local governing boards but they're also held to a very high accountability standard. So if that school model is ineffective, the community has the ability and the charter board has the ability to select a better model with no displacement of kids. And indeed that's been the case. So we were able to create a, a, a district of, of schools rather than a school district, a public school district. And some of the critics who, the anti-charter critics who want to take shots at New Orleans actually led the state in academic improvement for seven consecutive years by, I think, like something like 20 points. And New Orleans have always been either the last or the second lowest performing district. And so it certainly had phenomenal success. I think we were able to do it because the community was absolutely unified. There was nothing there. We were building things from scratch. We weren't displaced up and up and destroyed. And we had strong bipartisan support. And those reforms down there were actually reforms driven by the Democratic leadership, which of course had strong support among the, the Republican caucus in Louisiana too. So Katrina really brought the community together and gave me broad autonomy to go in and to do what was necessary. Interesting. Then you, I know just even more recently in the last couple of years, a different state, you were contacted by the Walton Foundation. They wanted to create a military and first responders academy. They wanted you to do it as a charter high school in Arkansas. And just help me, just not just that example, but just broadly, because I know it echoed 
one of the charter schools that you set up in New Orleans, the New Orleans Military Maritime Academy. The Maritime Academy. But what are the elements of that academic model that you think are important to replicate? In in 1987, I, I opened one of the nation's first public high school military academies. There was a desire to save this historic uh, building, the Brownsville, the Brownsville Armory, which was the first armory built, brick and mortar armory built for black soldiers because the, the, even the National Guard segregated the, their soldiers. You had these big behemoth armories for the white soldiers, and you had these barns for black soldiers. So I immediately thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open a military academy. And so that's what we did. We actually opened a military academy. We opened seven in Chicago. They were all out. None of them were charter schools, but they all had charter autonomy because the union leadership can be brought autonomy longer day, longer year, staffing models, et cetera, et cetera. It was as if they were functioning charter schools. And of course, in Philadelphia, I opened two. And then in New Orleans, I opened my first charter military academy, which is the New Orleans Military Maritime Academy, whose enrollment may climb as high as 1,200 under their new expansion plan. And of course, the one in uh, Connecticut. It's an ROTC model. The kids are in ROTC five days a week. It's all about leadership. It's run by a commandant and then the chief academic officer serves as the academic principal. And of course, it's got the first sergeant is the disciplinarian and he manages the school climate. You know what I mean? It's, it's all about leadership development, the healthy lifestyles, things like that. And when I say healthy lifestyles, I'm talking about nutrition and exercise, things like that. These are open enrollment schools. They're not select enrollment schools and they take special aid kids too. So it's really an extraordinary model, but the model also has a work-study component, and there's broader application for that component. When kids go to a military academy high school, they actually participate in work-study internships in the first responder professions, police, fire, EMS, nursing, avionics. The objective here is to introduce them to occupations and actually get them paid internships so we can introduce them to the workforce, we can give them their first job. We can expose them to certain professions. I think that model has great application. I know they're interested in opening more of them. Also, let me point out that that uh, um, the military academy model is first and foremost a work-study school, even before it's an ROTC school, because I'm cur currently working uh, with, with a philanthropist named John McKenzie, Michael Johnson, who has the largest Boys and Girls Clubs network in the country. They've opened an occupational training center for high school students, and their goal is to convert it to a charter and to begin to open a series of high schools that are occupational training high schools. In other words, four-year high schools, get your high school diploma, go to college, community college, whatever you want to do, but introduce you to the real work world and uh, give you the opportunity to participate in work-study jobs, paid work-study jobs while you're in high school. There's a Catholic school model like that that is for your listeners that is that that bears researching and it's called crystal ray and crystal ray was founded by the jesuits originally chicago was supposed to be a charter school but the cardinal nixon he didn't want any captain charter school the old cardinal and they decided to open it as a as a as an independent catholic school but all of the kids work while they are going to school and there are now 35 crystal ray schools they're 99 percent a minority. They're well over 90% low oh, income. It's a terrific school in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a spectacular school. And it's just, and so that model has great application for the well, That's interesting. So when you talk about that, it seems like 
the idea of what a good school, a good charter school, a good public school may have changed over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it sounds just special educations get an individualized education plan. I think at a lot of these schools, unless I'm missing it, they may get an individualized career plan. Yeah, absolutely. they can start to, even in ninth grade, start to think about what they want to do and get training. So it sounds like the possibility of career and technical education is something, as well as university-bound education, that's something that public education should support. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. There's been this big push, obviously, people are saying, we got to focus on vocal ed, occupational training, things like that. But to think for a second that, that if you're just going to have a strategy where we're going to open up some occupational training centers or some vocal ed centers, you're never going to reach the critical mass that you need to reach to reach all the kids. And, and look, with the industry, uh, with, technological, with the technological evolution moving at an accelerated pace, I mean, look, at, now I was just reading the other day about how AI is going to make some of these programming jobs almost obsolete because of the advances in AI. Uh, you're going to need a much more flexible occupational training set system. So I've always felt that there's no reason why you can't provide work-study opportunities for all the students in any city by doing the following things. First, look, opening high schools that have occupational training or that offer trades. I think having Boquet schools are fine, but every single school should be able to offer students work experience, should be able to offer students occupational training or work study and paid work study. So this is how I would have done it uh, had I gotten elected mayor in the city of Chicago. All the city agencies and all the city departments and all the, the, the city contractors whom incidentally control 100,000 jobs because the city controls the airport, police, fire, sewer, whatever. They're, they were all going to be directed to create work study job opportunities, work study internships or our high school students that they could pick, whether it was the, the law department or whether it was police, fire, ET, and MS, to, to allow the kids to participate in an array of work-study programs that would be designed by those entities, not basically run by the teachers or- oh, or, I see. So they were create the program. Secondly, that there are the 26 unions that all agreed to do something similar. Some unions have their own training programs, something that, but I don't want to, I didn't want to train the plumbers. I wanted the plumbers to train the plumbers and the carpenters to train the carpenters. So they were going to, they were going to open slots and they were going to set up pre-apprentice programs, et cetera, whether it was police, fire, and TMS. And, and of course, the school system, the schools can use their, the money that they would normally spend on irrelevant courses and these irrelevant electives. And anybody who gets to their senior year and is college bound is probably sitting around getting bored, taking a lot of courses that our meeting list will, will do very little to basically enhance the chances of doing well in college. They should be a work study. They should be interning with the trades or with the first, yeah. but they have met it with the local bank or with the local offer. You see what I mean? So the objective here is really to introduce and to incorporate work study experience into all the high schools. So students at a very young age can leave the campuses, be involved in internships and apprenticeships, surrounded by the best role models in the community, which are men and women, and introduce, you know, introduce into the economy, into the work world. And I think that's something you can do in any city, in, in any city. Getting ready for football season, we have a halftime announcement.
want to take a quick break and just thank the Charter School Investor Podcast sponsor, Herbert J. Sims. From single-site charter schools to CMOs, from expansions to startups, Herbert J. Sims delivers innovative and flexible capital solutions that meet their clients' evolving needs through their finance right approach. As you were talking about those internships, how uh, can community partnerships play a role in the success, of whether it's a career or technical school or any charter school or district school, those community partnerships? They can only be successful if they have an administration that wants to invite them in. There are always organizations right knocking on the door and eager to participate. And, and so it really begins with the superintendent. We have elected school councils in Chicago. And, and I remember when the other took control of the schools, there was this battle because it had, they had created the local school council movement in the 80s. Walter Annenberg funded that, of course, out of Philadelphia. He brought reform to Chicago. He spent more money in Chicago reform, I think, and God rest his soul, the wonderful philanthropist that, that he was. But so when Daly took over the school, some people viewed it as like the counter revolution, the empire strikes back. But I quickly realized that the councils could be a vehicle for parental and community involvement. It could be that door, that window that connects the, the school to the community. So it really, and so when I went, came to Philadelphia, I actually pushed schools to have a local, like a locally elected councils that would not only have parents represented, but also community-based organizations. So I think it's really important that every school be empowered. Every school have that infrastructure in place that can institutionalize the role for parents and community-based organizations to participate in the schools. First of all, first order of business is to turn those campuses into community centers and to allow community-based organizations, faith-based organizations to bring their programs into access to school. And then secondly, really create the type of governing council, even if it's advisory, that can have that broad representation of those very same groups. So I, I think that's a way to create this process to where you're bringing the community together, you're breaking the isolation that schools experience that schools so often have in their rural communities, despite the fact that the schools in most communities are the biggest employer, they're the biggest business. So I think those are things that you can do and, and in order to basically anchor the community in that school and vice versa. Interesting. Help me with this. What's an area where you feel like you have learned and grown the most as a leader? An area... In so many areas, I think I you can pick the area and I can talk to you about how my views have evolved. I have to learn to appreciate the fundamental reasons, the underlying goals of creating local school council. The way, so I discovered that those councils, rather than being adversaries, rather than being groups that would resist the, the centralized administration, could be groups that the central administration could use to close ranks to build support, et cetera. So I learned that. My thinking on work study has evolved from the concept of trying to recreate these, reopen these occupational training schools, which I worked to do in partnership with other occupational training institutions. But I quickly realized that we needed to do something much broader. And the universal work study of the Crystal Ray model, I discovered, uh, could be done. You could do this at scale. Every school 
uh, you don't have to be an occupational training center or a vocational ed school to basically introduce and expose children to the professions. I quickly learned on early childhood education, really by my, my mid-career in Chicago, the importance that, that waiting until the children were four was to provide early early intervention to provide preschool was too late. You needed to begin in the prenatal phase, the prenatal to the classroom program, that identifying pregnant teens, making sure babies are born healthy, providing, teaching the mothers, coaching the mothers, having parent coaches. Most of our parent coaches were actually mothers who had been on, had been on public assistance, who had been children who bore children themselves. So they had the experience. So. I think when you say, what have I learned? I think I've learned in practically every area, whether it's budget, finance, school construction, or school design, I think my thinking has evolved over time. So you can pick the area in it. And I can certainly tell you how my thinking on things has evolved. I became a much more radical, even though I did a lot of significant decentralization building out there. When I was in New Orleans, somebody wrote an article, one of the architects of the of reform movements in New Orleans, Leslie Jacob, who raised a lot of money, active on the school board, she pointed out that my one strength as a superintendent was my willingness to give up power. My willingness was to decentralize, my willingness to turn to empower people to, in local schools and local communities to make their own decisions. And I did not think that way in 95. That was, I had learned. I had to learn that. So that was a, that, that was a learning process. Sure. The, and when, when you devolved that power down and then you create an environment where the number of charter schools grow, whether it's in New Orleans or wherever, as you said, when we started our talk, a big piece is, at least as you describe it, data and accountability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, what do you mean I by that? Very of well, the role of central office. Is it's evolved from the all-dominating central office to a central office that is a resource center that provides all the schools with everything they need in terms of you need a standardized curriculum, you need the right interventions, you need the right call it, uh, quantitative assessment system. Whatever you need, we will provide. But we will provide it if you need it. We will provide it if you want it. So number one, we're going to give you everything you need. And then number two, we're going to hold you accountable for success and failure. Okay. So the idea, so that's how you become a school-proven organization is to carry the stick. We're going to give you everything you need, and we're going to hold you accountable. But beyond that, you're on your own. Now, right. of course, yeah. uh, our approach to capital was to, was, was to provide the buildings regardless of whether or not they were charters, not charters, whatever type of school. Children, they were entitled to, for the money to follow the kids, they were entitled 97% of the non-capital money actually went directly to the local schools, and they were entitled to the same facility support that, that the, the traditional public schools had and would receive. So at the end of the day, we leveled the playing field. But I really feel that the role of the central administration is to provide the best practices, to vet the school operators, to give the, the local communities the resources and support and the models that they need, because if you're going to empower them, you need to give them tools to use their those powers to oh to the best of the to, to, and the best interests of the community. As you were talking, I remembered that we were working with financing one of the early charter schools in Philadelphia. If you remember, Community Academy, Joe mm -hmm. 
real good school today. It has grown. It's really in an important pillar. And the we were getting ready to do the first investment for charter schools in the municipal bond market in Philadelphia. It was your tenure. And before they sold the bonds to allow them to build their own facility, um, the investors insisted on getting from the administration. You're head of the charter school office on the phone just to make sure that this was a good school. And so the person who will go nameless from the charter school office got on the phone with all the investors and said, if it were up to me, I'd close them all. I'd close all those charter schools. And darn it if the next day we had you on the phone with all the investors saying that, to be honest, there's a lot of paths to success in this city. We need every darn one of them. And Community Academy is one. And the bonds were sold and uh, success thereafter. You also, I think when this is just true with anybody in anything, learning is a little bit, you try this and then it doesn't work. You're willing to try that. And you don't just go down the path. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I agree. I'm constantly learning. I'm, I'm constantly in search of new models. I'm constantly innovating. We've got to come. We have no competition now. Our visual intelligence. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. But it's, it's funny. It's not very prolific. So I've, I've been testing my, my articles with, the, with uh, what AI is doing. Because now you've got these AI systems. It's just the, the, the way artificial intelligence is. Is, is, is evolving is really stunning. So, so I told my wife the other day, I'm trying to stay ahead of it. You know, I mean, some, that's what I'm competing with now, right? Um, but no, it's, on, it's a constant learning process. It's a process of information. I think you, you, you've got to keep your ego in check. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, you've got to be open to new things. The goal here is to find things that work. And like Steve Hawkins, you're constantly contemplating, you're constantly working problems. I've always considered myself to be almost like a, an engineer where I'm working the problem. I'm, I'm not happy if I'm, I, I don't have a problem that I'm trying to figure out. And if you're going to be, and if you're going to be a good engineer, you, you, you have got to have the skills. You've got to have the skills to, to think through problems and be open to making changes and not stuck in your own way, particularly when the data uh, points you in a certain direction. So. Absolutely. And I think one thing I've had the joy of experiencing uh, working with you in a variety of different sectors, you're very good at, as we talked about, empowering your team, you know, realizing that you're not going to do everything and having them feel supported and, and jumping in when you need to support them. So that's something I've learned from you, Paul. One well, of the things. Paul, thank you for being so generous with your but- insights. One more time, a huge thank you from me and all of us at School Improvement Partnership to our sponsor, Herbert J. Sims.